0: So Money, Episode 299. Happy Thanksgiving. It's me again. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Well, ahead of introducing today's wonderful guest, I have to quickly share with you the charity fundraiser and competition that's going to be going on all month here at So Money the entire month of November in tandem with a charity fundraiser forward slash competition going on with Josal Sihai's podcast, Stacking Benjamins. And to tell us all about that, I brought on Joe. And Joe, here you go. What, take the mic. You, you invited me onto this little fundraiser of yours and I'm, I'm excited, but also a little nervous.
1: Parnish, I'm way excited that we're doing this together. You know, uh, we can raise a bunch of money for charity. And I love this at the end of the year with Thanksgiving. For people in the United States, we end the month of November with uh, Thanksgiving. And I thought, what a great way for our community to help another community that might need it. So we are going to be raising money for the Texas 4000, which is a 4000 mile bike ride that University of Texas students take to raise money for cancer research. And, and cancer-related causes, uh, I know that they give a lot of money to MD Anderson Hospital, one of the premier uh, cancer treatment clinics in the United States, in Houston, Texas. And then they also give it to worthwhile uh, research facilities around the nation. So we're going to be raising money at, at, at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Texas 4000. And it's cool because our organization, Farnoosh, has a lot in terms of where the money goes. A lot in common with who mm-hmm. you're raising money yes. for. Talk about that for a minute.
0: Well, thank you. That was a nice transition. So uh, I have chosen our team here at So Money has chosen the largest student-run philanthropy in the world, near and dear to my heart as well, because I was a part of this when I was in college. It's the Penn State IFC Panhellenic Dance Marathon. It's affectionately known as Thon, and it's a year-long effort to raise money and awareness for the fight against pediatric cancer. It's raised over. million for the Four Diamonds Fund at Penn State Hershey Children's Hospital. And next year's THON 2016 is what we are fundraising for now. And that will be taking place February 19th through the 21st. It's a 46-hour dance marathon. I did it and I survived. It was... Uh, life altering, uh, but of course it's for an amazing, tremendous and important cause. Thon.org forward slash so money. Thon.org forward slash so money is where you can go to contribute. I know it's high season for canning and this is a way to join in on the fun. Anything you can do, know that it will be well spent. Over 95% of funds go to the families.
1: That's so great. And the writer that we're writing for, uh, who's writing in the Texas 4,000, her name is Shelby Schreiber. Her father was a single dad raising her, Farnoosh, and when she was in high school, he started feeling bad, went to the doctor. It turned out he had terminal cancer, and he passed away when she was just in high school. Hmm. So here she is without a dad, and now she decided she's going to ride this 4,000-mile bike ride in honor of him. And they spend no money on the bike ride. Uh, All the food along the way, all the housing along the way is donated. So I love these organizations, but stackinbenjamins.com forward slash Texas four zero zero zero. and, And I hope together we can raise a lot of money.
0: I think we will. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I'm reporting to you from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It's very lovely here. The weather is ridiculous. It's like 60 degrees on the East Coast. Definitely one of the warmest Thanksgivings I can remember. Here we are from the home where my husband grew up, feeling very grateful this year for my healthy and beautiful son, Evan. He's turning 17 months this month. I'm also thankful for Tim, my best friend, my husband, my sometimes guest on So Money, and of course my supportive and loving parents and in-laws. I'm also really thankful to have a career that I love, a home that I can call my own, my health, And of course, this year, I'll be thinking and praying for all the families all over America and abroad that are having a tough time in Paris, in Syria, in the Middle East. You know, I forget sometimes just how lucky I am. My parents, for those of you who don't know, came here more or less fleeing their homeland, Iran, in the late 70s, early 80s. I was born here. But they came here with two suitcases, leaving a country that was in the midst of a dark war, a revolution. And I personally would not be here today. Doing what I'm doing in the United States had it not been for the United States, granting my mom and dad a permit to stay here and to work and ultimately earn their citizenship. For that reason and so much more, I am so indebted to this country, so grateful, so happy to be here and happy to be here with you. For today's episode, we're doing a throwback to my interview, my So Money interview. I recorded it back in July. The guest host was Joe Salcihi of Stacking Benjamins. You just heard him. We were talking about our charity competition, which, by the way, I am losing. <laughs> okay? So if you've got some spare change, if you have uh, any desire to help Thon and you want to help a charity that's supporting families stricken with childhood cancer, this would be great if you would do it. I, w- I would be so grateful. I would be so appreciative. And we have the link over at somoneypodcast.com, but also if you go to thon.org slash money. There you can contribute. It's under my name, but then you get the tax deduction. It doesn't all go to me. It's just uh, my name is the name of the uh, the group that they are uh, putting the contributions under. So don't be confused by that. But anyway, it would be great to beat Joe and not be the butt of his joke. Because as we know, the loser has to read an introduction written by the winner in January. And I'm really scared because Joe's an excellent writer. So do a girl a favor and contribute to THON. THON.org forward slash money. It's for the kids. And on today's episode, it's a rerun, but if you missed it or you're looking forward to hearing it again, I share things with him that I don't think I've shared with anyone. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. Anyway, wishing you and your family a blessed holiday, everyone, wishing you health, wealth, and happiness.
1: Welcome back to so money, everybody. I'm your host, Joe Salcihai. And no, before you turn this off, this isn't the wrong channel. If you were expecting a voice far smoother than mine, specifically that of Farnoosh Robbie, well, guess what? You're in the right spot because on today's podcast, I have the interview and the privilege of grilling Farnoosh on the same topics that she asked Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, and all the other awesome guests she has on. So are you ready?
0: I'm so scared. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you weren't supposed to talk yet,
0: Farnoosh. Oh, sorry.
1: I haven't introduced you to your audience. They don't know you're here. Sorry. <laughs> and so here we go. I hope this is going to be a great show. Can and I then, talk now? Now you can talk, Farnoosh.
0: Okay, thanks. Hi, I, everyone. Is I love this- being
1: able to tell you you can't talk on your own show. <laughs>
0: well, I bow to you today. I, uh, I'm i just excited. This is fun Changing things up a little bit, I, you know. Obviously, uh, listeners have been asking me to take the hot seat and answer my own questions, and I've been promising them, promising them. And I thought, you know, I'm going to wait for the right opportunity. I was on your show; you were on my show not too long ago as a guest, and so I thought, you know, Joe's fun. He's right professional. I love stacking Benjamins. We have a very similar audience in terms of what they're looking for. So I thought, hey, Joe. Why don't you be the host for the day? And you, you were very kind and generous and here you are. So I'm just going to stop now and let you take the lead again. And hopefully I'll have good answers for y'all.
1: Well, well, here's what I didn't want to do, because I know you sit through every single show and you ask people this list of questions. And I'm sure if you're like me, every time you're listening to your guest and you go, oh, here's how I would have answered that. So, so you've been ready for this forever. And I want to keep you on your toes, Farnoosh. So I'm going to ask you some of the same questions, but I'm also going to throw in some of my own because I want this to be more like a 60 minutes expose, you know, <laughs> where, where, the guest, where the guest sweats a little bit and then you realize we're really there because we realize that your product's defaulting and a bunch of people are going to sue you.
0: Oh my gosh. All right. Um, <laughs> good thing there are no cameras rolling, <laughs> at least. It's just audio.
1: Oh, no, no, it's not going to be that. Oh, there's so- a hidden
0: camera somewhere? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm the guy looking in the window over there, right? Now, I, all right, so let's start here. I want to ask you about your work because you've told me when you were on our podcast, the last, not the last time, but the time before that, talking about your book, that you're from a very traditional family, but you have a very non traditional relationship with your husband when it comes to money.
0: Yes. So I grew up in a household where dad made the money, a lot of the money. My mom worked here and there. I don't think she ever really enjoyed the career that she pursued. She sort of just worked to work to make money and didn't I don't think p- followed her passion and so she um didn't continue with her career for very long. I would say growing up she was a working mom from my perspective, but my brother and I are actually 11 years apart. And when he was born, she more or less stopped working to to raise him. And at that point, my father was making enough money where they could have a, a single income household. So it was more or less pretty traditional. All the other kids in the, in the neighborhood had moms that didn't work or fathers who were the main breadwinners. And also add to that, we are a, a Middle Eastern family where it's definitely common for the men to be the patriarchs and to be the financial breadwinners and all of that, and the moms to really be the the caretakers. Ironic, though, because I was always raised to be this very studious, aspirational, career-driven young woman. In fact, when I wanted to date in my teen years, it was kind of an awkward topic. I couldn't really – I wasn't allowed to have a boyfriend. I'll just say it. But I definitely snuck around, and I had a boyfriend. And – um <laughs> And I almost wasn't allowed to go to prom. It was this whole debate. My mom. We had this joke where mom was like, "You can date when you're married," you know. In other words, like just put let just put relationships and dating like focus on you. Put that to the wayside. Focus on you. Focus on getting schooled and getting your education and getting your career going and making money. So, was raised to be very independent. And I talk about this in the book. It's like there was this moment in my life where I felt that I've done everything that I was supposed to do. I got the degree. I got the master's degree. I started writing books. I was at the top of my career. And then I fell in love. You know, I married for love. Yet I felt I was disappointing in some ways the cultural ideals of my family growing up where this idea that Varnoosh was gonna be taken care of and she would marry this man who would come in and like, Support and be the breadwinner. And he would be this, a doctor or a lawyer or, a, you know, CEO of his own company. And, <laughs> um, that didn't happen. And I felt that there was a bit of scrutiny on that, you know, f- with, on that part of my life. The fact that I was making more than my boyfriend than husband. And I felt very lost at sea in a, a bit, like emotionally and financially. I, I, we felt we had a handle on the situation, but there was all this sort of emotional, baggage that was coming along with it, feeling were judged.
1: Par- yeah. Were your parents actually negative farnoosh or was that more mm. between your ears what you expected them to be?
0: My mother literally told me once and, I, and this is all in the book i'm not you know doing anything i'm not breaking any news here but basically she said to me several times that she was an unsure about the relationship that she was concerned for my well-being she didn't think it would work out she was very frank my you know anyone who's got a middle eastern mother or a jewish mother or an italian mother an indian mother <laughs> i feel like there's this undercurrent of mothers just like putting it out there and never never and nothing is ever a suggestion it's like you should do this and i think i like to think it's a language barrier thing that really in her mind she's thinking, she's making a suggestion, but it's just coming out very forcefully. Um, So that, that was hard. And that definitely weighed on our relationship. And we've since reconciled. And obviously now she's very happy for me. She, I've written a book about it, you know, and we, right. it's obviously all out there and we're, we're okay with it. Everyone's cool, but it definitely was something that I grappled with. And I saw, I thought, I'm wondering if other people are also experiencing this as well. And it turns out they were lots and lots and lots of relationships across the country experience a woman making more than her male husband or boyfriend. And it's a point of contention um even if they're cool with it society may not be their family may not be work friends may not be you can just say screw y'all you know but that's not really how wor- the, how life works i could have just been like mom smell you later but that's not that's not how that's not nice you know and that's not what i want i want to actually have a good relationship with the people that i love so how do you work on that that was the challenge and and i talk about the results in the book
1: yeah, it's funny because Cheryl and I, at different times in our career, one is made more than the other. And it definitely changes the relationship as as the money dynamic changes. Do you, do you and your husband share a single checkbook? Because, you know, you've talked about that on your show quite a few times.
0: <clears throat> we do have a bank account that we share that we opened up as soon as we got married, uh, more just because... It was logistically helpful. We had all these checks that we wanted to cash from our wedding that were written out to the both of us. Right. <laughs> um so and we felt this was for the first time in our lives this was money that was gifted to the both of us that we had both received equally. So we wanted to be fair about where that money was going to go and that money now is helping us uh, it's growing and we we add to it and it's uh, it's going to serve not a lot of purposes but maybe one day it will become the money that we use to send our child to preschool, or, you know, it's, it's, there's enough in there that we can actually do something significant with it. But for the most part, we have our own accounts and our, he's, you know, we have a joint credit card that we use again, mainly f- to leverage to say, okay, well, we're both going to be spending, let's do it on one card to earn the points and be able to maximize our rewards. As far as everything else, it's pretty separate. And I think that's largely to do also with the fact that we, whether, not not so much the income disparity, it's really the fact that we got married in our 30s, at which point we've both been very accustomed to managing our own money, having our own bank accounts. It was just easier this way. And we're very transparent still. We don't, you know, there's no lack of trust or uh, any intimidation or fear or awkwardness as far as asking each other about our our financial situations, you know, how much is in your bank account. We see everything on one portal. We share an online portal where we can see everything. So it hasn't created any conflict. Nope. Nope. And I I credit the fact that we have maintained separate accounts for the fact that there is no conflict. I think that if there was only one bank account and everything was going into that bank account, uh, it would just get sticky, I think. And I have to say, of all the couples that I work with and, you know, have coached. Whenever there's bickering and disputes over spending, it's often I find when I ask the question, how do you manage your money? They have one account. So I think that it doesn't work for everybody. Um, It's it's
1: funny because as you know, from guests on your show, the proponents of a single bank account, they believe that that curtails the fight.
0: I find that the couples that have the single bank account, that they are happy with it, married young or they married early enough in their life together that it it was fine. It was just sort of, it was more seamless when you get married in your thirties. If it's a second marriage, it's a lot stickier and it's like more, it's harder Um, transferring your bank account. Let's just get a mint.com account or let's just get a, you know, a, a, a some sort of software where we can see everything and we don't have to move money around.
1: I can't ask this next question without hearing you ask it in your voice. So What's your personal financial philosophy?
0: <laughs> What's your personal financial philosophy? I have many, as you know, I pro- I've written a book. Psych Yourself Rich was really all about mindset and, right. and you know f- the way you think about money. And I've got a whole chapter d- devoted to financial philosophies. I have several. What's your favorite though? Oh, um, I would say that, um, no one cares more about your money than you. and I okay, maybe Susie Orman said that first. we <laughs> discovered we discovered this on a recent podcast together. Um, whatever, I'll share this with her. Uh, but it's true. I think that you have to be your biggest advocate when it comes to money. I have experienced this myself. I've experienced this experienced this today, you know, yesterday. i I'm going through a big renovation right now with my home. Um, If I am not on top of every single line item in that budget from that contractor, if I'm not constantly emailing my architect about this, that, the other thing, I would get screwed. I would get screwed over. I would get overcharged. Things would get expensed that I didn't want to get expensed. So that's one example. But all through life, what this means, being your biggest advocate, accepting that no one cares more about your money than you, I think it empowers you to really ask the questions, to speak up, to negotiate. Don't ever wait for a handout. Don't ever wait for you know an opportunity to come knocking. You have to be out there seeking those opportunities, creating those opportunities for yourself uh, because at the end of the day, it's your money; it's nobody else's. Um, you know, and so protect it, respect it, nourish it, and it's a philosophy that I've that has really helped carry me through uh, good times and, and tougher times. And I think it's something that, as I say and I repeat to myself, and as I do this podcast daily, I, it comes up a lot. It's uh, It rings really true in my life. And I think it's something that I love to share to a lot of people. It's a mindset, really. It's not a philosophy that talks about how to move your money or how to earn or how to save. It's really sort of an overarching philosophy that can help you in, in all regards when it comes to money. Yeah, own it. Own it.
1: Money memories. What is your earliest money memory?
0: My earliest, the well, earliest money memory is when I was five years old. We were at the mall. I think I was five or six and um, I was having a bad day. I was a bad day, Joe. I was like having the – just a case of the grumpies and I was upset because I couldn't buy anything. I had no money. Every time I wanted to get something, I had to ask my dad and my dad was – although in some ways he was the easier one to trick um, and and convince that I needed something, he was also – sometimes the most resistant when it came to, like if you're out with your dad shopping, he wouldn't buy something because he was afraid what your mom would say when you got home. Why did you buy her these <laughs> shoes? She doesn't need shoes. So he, you know, it was depending on like his mood and whether he was willing to take it from my mom that day.
1: You had to manage it.
0: I had to manage it. So I was at the mall with my dad and actually my dad's cousin. And I was sitting on the bench with my uncle, with my, my dad's cousin. And uh, he's like, why are you so, why turn that frown upside down? In front of you, why are you so sad? I was like, I just, I wish I had my own money. It sucks. It's probably not what I said, but, you know, I was feeling blue. And he's like, well, you know what? Do you have an allowance? I said, what is that? And he said, it's when your parents pay you money and you go and you do with whatever you want with it. I was like, that, <laughs> that is brilliant. No one has ever taught me this concept. I was six. What did I know? So my dad came over and he's like, what are you guys talking about? And I was like, well – Uncle Allie over here, I called him uncle because I, you know, great cousin. So I just called him Uncle Ally And I was like, Uncle Allie says that um, I should get an allowance. And my dad kind of looked at him like, seriously, dude, <laughs> we're trying to avoid this topic for as long as possible. So I was like, this sounds excellent. So he's like, no. So he, Allie became kind of, Uncle Allie was sort of my negotiating partner in this conversation at this point. He was like, listen, I think she should get in her own allowance. I think that, you know, she's voicing that she's ready to work with money, do something with money. What are you willing to do for it? I was like, well, and you know, so we discussed like what I would do. And I think we negotiated four or $5 a week, which that was a lot of money back in 1985. That's a lot of money now for a five-year-old <laughs> every week. I um,
1: the point of the story was going to be that you learned you needed a good agent.
0: Um, well, perhaps that planted the seed. I have an agent now. Yeah. So he negotiates for me. But I was there in the negotiating at this point on this bench in the mall. And um my dad, I think under the under the pressure from his relative who was visiting, he was like, Okay, fine, um, we'll do an allowance. And uh that's all I remember though. I don't ever remember getting the allowance after that conversation <laughs> or doing anything with the allowance. I just remember that conversation happening and actually I ran into my uncle – not ran in. He visited – he lives in Kuwait and he visited us um, a few months ago and he, we, we still talk about this story. And I think – I remember it as being like a $4. He's like, no – I got you $5. Don't you ever forget that was $5 that I negotiated for you. That's my earliest money memory. Farnoosh feeling very insecure and helpless because she didn't have her own money and wanting just to find ways to make it. I'm like, I'm five. No one's going to hire me. I can't do anything. What's What do I do? And uh, an allowance. I actually, I just wrote about allowances for Money Magazine. If you catch the, I think it's the July or August issue out now about the new rules to an allowance. And back then I had to do chores, but now parents are switching it up and saying, chores are just things that you have to do. You're not going to get paid for that. But if you want to enterprise your way to making money- that's a conversation we can have. So there are parents all over the country uh, saying to me that their, their kids are coming to them with business ideas or, you know, uh, projects that they can do around the house. And then they negotiate the salary or the income or the pay. And that's how they earn their money, which I think is brilliant.
1: Well, my friend uh, Shannon Ryan uh, over at the Heavy Purse talks a lot about kids and money and and they have a jobs board. Where she posts jobs, you know. Awesome. And if they take different jobs, they do they they, have to
0: interview for the jobs? That's that'd be so cute.
1: They they (laughs) have to put together exactly the plan of how they're going to accomplish whatever the job is. Oh my
0: gosh, and and of
1: course then there's Bill Dwight over at uh, FamZoo, who's on your show, who talks about that kind of stuff. Oh yeah,
0: for sure. I interviewed him for this article in Money Magazine. Um, That's awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna inherit that when Evan is a little older. He's 13 months, so I'm thinking like in a few months we can incorporate the jobs board. Yeah, the
1: job board might not work yet. <laughs> so so how, how does that story, though, shape who you are today? Because, at, you know, after Own It, that story more is about ask for it and hopefully somebody else will pay for it. It's,
0: it's got to the, <laughs> no, you know, I think I think for me, that just is a sign that little Farnoosh always had it in her to achieve financial freedom. You know, for me, money was freedom. It was the freedom to make my own choices. I didn't have to ask for permission um, for everything. And so I saw really money as this tool to get what I wanted, to become more of an adult, to be able to exercise my freedom. And and I and I still see it as, as being that way. I still see it as when, when you're able to earn your own money, and, and perhaps that's why I'm the breadwinner in my marriage because I don't ever want to be dependent on someone for money, that would just um, that would be the, one of the scariest things, I think, to experience.
1: I needed a spouse that was someone who was was independent also and would and, and that we could be independently great separately, but even better together. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like, mean, just, the, the like, thing about my husband and I is like we both encourage each other to, to just kill it, you know, and, and to do as best we can in our respective careers we're each other's biggest advocates. Um, and so individually we are rock stars and together when we synergize, it's even more powerful and great.
1: Yeah. And nothing against families where, where the family dynamic is one really supports the other's career and really, you know, they move in just one direction. That just isn't, isn't my family and clearly not yours
0: either. No, but I will say though, that, uh it w- our dynamic would not work if Tim had a similar career as I do. Another uh, you know, we couldn't be going I go 100 miles per hour every week. Um Well, it mostly
1: be because you'd want to squash him.
0: <laughs> we get very yeah, <laughs> exactly. I would destroy him. Um no, but you know his his job is awesome. He gets to do what he loves, but also it's a set up, he works for a company that is very uh, generous with their flex leave and their flex time. And you can, you negotiate working from home. And so, and that helps me tremendously. For example, this morning, um, I almost had to cancel this podcast because my nanny was came to work, but she came home to our house this morning sick as a, uh, just totally sick. We've all been carrying something the last few weeks. I've, for those of you who know, my voice has been—I sounded like a um, you know, raspy. A, a ra- very raspy over the last few weeks. So I, eventually, I think she caught our bug, and but she's so great, she came in anyway. And she's like, "I think I have to go home." I'm like, "Please go home. You know, we'll figure this out." And my husband was about to catch a train to DC, and he—he's now he's still here. He's delayed his train um, so that he can watch our son while I complete my podcasts. Otherwise, I probably would have just. Um, sedated my son. No, I'm kidding. I would have, um, I don't know. I would have had to reschedule and run reruns basically this week, but. Uh,
1: only people with kids would laugh at that. <laughs> Remember before you had kids and you crack a joke like that? That's and
0: horrible. You, oh, I'm that, not serious people.
1: Right. Exactly. Uh, okay. So here's the 60 minutes griller question. Mm -hmm. And this one, I'm sure the answer to this Farnoosh is going to make the front page of the (laughs) inquiry. I've been waiting forever to ask you this. Here we go. Has Farnoosh ever had a financial fail?
0: Of course. No way. Oh my gosh. I've had several, although they all happened in a very condensed period of time. I was stupid in my twenties. Um, I was, I was, I was ill prepared for for the reality of having a bank account and a, and a credit card in my college years and in my early twenties. I, I distinctly remember one summer in college, I was working at. I was still. At, I went to Penn State, and I was. I stayed the summer, and I made a buttload of money. I was very good at earning, not good at managing the money. I spent that summer working. I had like three jobs. I saved. Thousands, I earned thousands of dollars that summer but i had nothing to show for it by the end except for actually a negative bank account because i had overdrawn my i had overdrafted my checking account at one point i um i used to do this thing where i used to go to the atm take the receipt and then whatever at the end it said at the end of that receipt that's what i thought i had in my bank account i never checked my bank account balance any way, anywhere else or any way else which as we know and i learned the hard way there was a delay and what the ATM receipt says and what is actually the reality of your bank account.
1: There's a wave approaching the shore.
0: Yes. Oh, yes. At one point, I was using my debit card and I never use – I hate using debit cards today, these days. I I try to avoid it as much as possible. But I was using a debit card in college and a couple of days go by and I'm just spending, spending, spending – I finally go on and then I just could, I didn't have no money left. Like I got rejected at the, at the store and I was like, what? That's, that can't be possible. Checked my bank account. There was like $200 in overdraft fees. I had overdrafted probably 10 times and, but actually maybe there is a good lesson to this story. I called the bank. It was a credit union, digital federal credit union. I'm still with them. They're a top notch credit union. Um, called the guy at the credit union and I said, I'm so, Sorry, I, I didn't know that I was, I didn't have enough. And I mean, the debit card kept working. So what was I supposed to think? He said, look, I understand it was your, it's your first, it's your first big mistake. And I see that, you know, you couldn't have really known had you, unless you had checked your bank account, but yeah. all right, I'll just give you one slap on the wrist. So I went from a $200 fee to like 20.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. And one phone call, which was nice, but I still had to fill that bank account again. You know, I had no money left. So basically for a week, I just ate out of my cupboards and um, didn't spend any money until my check came in and I was able to replenish the bank account. But that was a very early lesson in managing a checking account. Did you uh, find yourself starting to
1: use a spending plan then at that point, or was it still a serious- I
0: decided to start making more money. Uh Yeah. I of course went through the budget. I was a big Excel spreadsheet person in my 20s. I would I would write down everything that I was spending my money on. I would budget and I would I would foresee, you know, costs of things like food and okay, this month I'll probably spend this much money on subway and whatever, um, both the sandwich and the metro. Um, I was a big $5 foot long girl for many years in my 20s. Um, and it doesn't
1: have to be either or it can be both. <laughs>
0: right. So I definitely was watching every, every penny, but it got to the point where, you know, I was just talking to Paula Pant of Afford Anything before we got on, the, on our podcast and she's airing soon. And I thought, and we had this conversation where it's like, you know, you can always earn more. There's a point to which you can save after which you're living like way below your means and you probably have to live in your car in order to continue saving. I didn't have a car. I would have to live in the subway. So I just decided I'm going to start freelancing and make more money and just hustle, hustle, hustle. I started babysitting, pet sitting, freelance writing. I did it all, um, so that I could recover the hole that I developed for myself in the early twenties and, um, by now, I had some student loan debt as well from, mas- from my master's degrees, and cutting my lattes wasn't going to do it. I wasn't even drinking lattes. I was like, "What? What am I going to cut? My my free coffee from work that I that I'm now drinking because I'm so poor." So I had to learn another way, and that was earning.
1: Which is interesting because it. it um, I mean, while that's a solution. And, and, and I love Paula. Paula's on our show every Monday on Stacking Benjamins. Uh, and she's always talking about, you know, just the, 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 I guess efficacy is the right word. That's a billion dollar word, but but just the usefulness of earning more money versus trying to pinch every penny. But but, but the, the frustrating thing is for some people, that's when the rat race begins, right? You earn more and then that empowers you to spend more and then you earn more, you spend more. And next thing you know, your expenses are ballooning out of control.
0: Well, you have to be disciplined about it and really know what your objective is when you're earning more. You know, my 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 intent was not to earn more so that I could quickly spend it i I had an objective I was able to um, I was able to save a lot I was able to pay off my debt I was able to yeah go out and have a few more dinners with my friends and not stress out about it but uh, I also for me I was lucky because I was doing Some of the things I was doing to make extra money, uh, I I really enjoyed and I was able to leverage those experiences to uh, get other opportunities that advanced my career and eventually helped me to uh, be independent and and be a freelancer full time. So it's, it's really what you have to really be well-intentioned when you start to make more money. And it's not just to make more money to make more money. Like what, as I always say, your money is meaningless unless you attach it to goals. So if you're bringing in an extra $200 a week, you better know where that money is going and make it meaningful.
1: Right. Cause otherwise it'll find some place to go.
0: Yeah. It'll just, and somewhere you won't even know where it went. And well, then you have to work more to kind of make more to feel that, you know, you're, ahead, you're still ahead.
1: And I was going to ask you about that as you're earning more money, there had to have been something along the way that you bought that you thought this is the, so why did I buy this? Market?
0: Oh my gosh. Do you know one time? Oh my gosh. I can't believe I'm saying this. Um, it, it ended well, but <laughs> um, so I got a new job at one point. I, I got a huge pay raise from transitioning from – I was working at New York One making like $45,000 a year as a producer, and I really wanted to stay at New York One and, and try to rise up the ranks there, become an on-camera reporter, eventually maybe an anchor, and I really, really loved the, the, the workplace. Uh, they just weren't ready for me to do that as, a, as quickly as I wanted. So I started looking elsewhere. I got a job at thestreet.com, launching their video channel, working with Jim Kramer. I managed to negotiate. I doubled my salary when I went there. So for a a young woman living in New York to suddenly double your salary in one job interview. Bam. Bam. Plus, I was still freelancing. So I was about making six figures at 26. And I was – feeling I, like this is this was the problem. Like I hadn't actually put the numbers through an Excel spreadsheet. I was like, six figures. I'm a six, so I'm a six. Like this was the running song. I'm, I'm a six figure lady. This was just like my theme song. I was walking down the streets of New York. Like I was like, I could buy this. I could buy that. I could buy all of y'all some drinks. And I remember before as I was transitioning into this job, I attended a fundraiser for my friend's company. And at this fundraiser, they had a silent auction going on for this Vespa. Can I, you know, do I have to tell you the rest of the story? So I had a few beers. The the train's already
1: in slow motion. Yeah, I had
0: a few uh, beers. Nobody had bid for this Vespa. And so to make my friend who had run, had thrown this event, like to just kind of for beeps and giggles, I, um, I put my name down I started the bid at the minimum, which was $5,000. And uh, what the hell am I going to do with a Vespa? I hadn't thought it all through, Joe. I just, I was like, I'm going to put my name down on this, on this list. And hopefully it'll encourage other people to inspire other people to also bid.
1: Cause there's no way you'd win.
0: Cause there's no way I'd win. I'm the first bidder. And right. this, you know, it's a beautiful Vespa, like $5,000 I think was below market price for this. So, um, an hour goes by and I hear, congratulations to our Vespa winner, Farnoosh Harabi. I was like, WTF? Oh, my God. And so I got all excited. I was like, yeah, I played the part. I'm like, hey, woohoo. I'm so excited. I got on the Vespa. I posed for pictures. Um, No, no idea what I was going to do. And I had the money, but I was like – there's the insurance. I got to garage this thing. I don't know how to drive a Vespa. So I have to learn and probably pay lessons to get that. I got to pay money to get the license. So quickly it was becoming a much bigger financial uh, investment than I had really thought about. And so um, I just never went to go pick it up and I never sent in the check for um, (laughs) the auction. And luckily I never had to because somebody else bought it off me. Oh, good. Yeah, months and months and months later, maybe even a year later, this thing just sat and um the company kept like every every like four months or so I get an email like, So what are you thinking? Like, do you want the Vespa? Like, you know, if you don't, like let us know, we'll find another buyer. And I was too embarrassed to say I didn't want it. I wanted to just have it go away <laughs> without me having to be the bad guy or the the loser.
1: If you ignore the problem, it'll just go away. So this is
0: a failure and also perhaps just, how did we get to this? I don't even know. Did you ask me a question?
1: Yeah, this was the biggest train wreck thing you ever bought.
0: Oh, so this was it. Yeah. I never ended up owning it, but it was for a while um, a big source of stress for me because I'm like, oh my God, if I have to really, if I have to pay for this, I have to pay for this and I'm going to be like $7,000 in the hole when it's all said and done and nowhere to go with this Vespa.
1: There was a time, though, that you had a huge, huge like breakthrough win. When was that?
0: Oh my gosh! Um, when Your So Money came out, my very first book, I was asked to be on the Today Show, and I think i, 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 I didn't sleep for like two months before I went live on the Today Show.
1: You had that kind of notice. It wasn't like beyond next week. No, just- no, it
0: was. It was a lot of notice. Oh, um, yeah, just a little insider. You know insight for y'all who want to publish books and want to get on mainstream media like the shows like Good Morning America Today show they have separate departments that book authors for books and they you know you can only imagine how many books they get and um at least my producer she was very she was very good and and worked ahead of schedule but we had about eight weeks of time so it was good in that sense I had time to really prepare myself but I was still I was like a bad out of. Hell, when I was on that four minutes with Meredith Vieira, I talked so fast. <laughs> I called her old, and I rambled, and I, I remember we were done, and I thought oh, I blew it. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I don't want to. I had to like be to like peel me off the couch. Um, but then the producer came up to me and she said, "That was interesting. So we want to have you back."
1: I oh, oh. think I think
0: it's cuz I was such a spectacle. I was I, I mean I I called Meredith Vieira old. I didn't mean to, but more or less I did. Uh, you have to see the clip. I can't I'm not going to even explain. I mean, I was just trying to say that she said she asked me why would you why would anyone want to read this book written by a young adult versus somebody who is more who's older and more experienced. And my thing was like, well, we don't want to read a book from someone who's like your age. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because we want someone who is kind of entrenched in, in this, you know, in this universe that we're living in as, as millennials, as young adults who are poor and trying to make, become successful, but we don't have a roadmap and we know the right, we know what the right things are to do, but we don't know how to get started. And it's just a a more honest kind of take on the reality that so many of us are experiencing. I was less eloquent, uh, when I was 27 or 28, however old I was. And, um. But it did, it did catch her off guard and she kind of like, we had a moment of laughter about it. I was mortified on the inside. I was d- crying, sobbing on the inside and she was, I think she was having fun with it. Um, the producers were definitely heckling and I think that's what honestly won me back and back and back and back. And that was my breakthrough moment career wise because getting on the Today Show consistently, um, while they didn't pay me was a wonderful platform to have and just was the, was was very helpful in getting me on all other shows and getting me other books and getting me out there and known. So I I think um, you know that was probably the breakthrough career moment for me.
1: That's funny that uh, a moment that you would think is so bad is also. Oh my
0: god, I thought I was I thought it was over.
1: Wow, did did you get to know Meredith really well then after that?
0: Not really well, Um, but she's very kind. Con- she's such. I mean, I, I met a lot of people on air. And a lot of talents, talent. I put in air quotes, and hosts and you know anchors. And she is by far the most genuine, the kindest, the sweetest. The just makes you feel at home. And while we didn't have a, a ton of run-ins, um, she was often um, doing like harder news reporting. I was always delighted when she was the anchor uh, across from me. And actually, I was on her talk show. Not too long ago on as a guest, so I was very happy to reunite with her. I don't think she remembered me, and I didn't have time to kind of bring it up and I didn't actually want to remember me. I was the woman who called you old I'm
1: sure though that she's very uh, as she appears on t v because she is such a you know she is she has such a charisma about her just as we're all people, it's all very relaxed, and I think that's her her m o
0: yeah no she is uh she is one of the most liked and likable people I think in the industry. Which is why I think her career has done so well. I mean, it just goes to show you, being a nice person is is a good thing.
1: Well, that leads me to to my next uh, question, which is not from your sheet, which is uh, a couple other career moments. How did you end up working with Gene Chatsky?
0: So funny story. I was in college, realizing that I wanted to pursue journalism. Oops. I wish I had known this earlier because I've now been two years entrenched in the business school and studying finance. How the heck am I going to transition without necessarily delaying my graduation? And so I decided to – I found this internship program um, as I was researching uh, like ways to transition. And I found this internship program from Time Inc. at the time that was selecting – I think it was like a 100 – to students across the country. It was an annual summer program. They would place you at one of their magazines. So, Time Inc. owns Money, Fortune, Real Simple, uh, In Style, People, Time, Entertainment Weekly. So, they had tons and tons and tons of places to, to put you as an editorial intern. As a finance major, I applied. I had some writing. Experience. I was the editor in chief of my high school newspaper. I was working at the school paper in college, although I was working on the advertising sales side. But I was, I was a good writer, and I I think I made a compelling case to be an editorial assistant intern at, in this program at, at one of the you know financial magazines, whether it was Fortune or or uh, Money or Fortune Small Business, which I think has folded since, but. I applied, and then I went away and I studied abroad in Paris for the for the year. And I got a call or an email when I was in P- Paris from the HR lady at Time Inc. saying, "Hey, your your application came across my desk. We're really interested in you, but I just want to make sure that you didn't make a mistake on this application. You say here that you want to work for Money Magazine. You don't want to, you know, we own some other magazines, right? Like you want to work at Money? <laughs> Why do you want to do that? All right, I think I was the only kid that applied to work at Money Magazine." And so that's why I got the job because it was not of interest. I mean, who would really – for me, I just saw this as an opportunity to get into the industry. Like I didn't know if I actually did want to work at Money, but I was like, this is my way to get into the program. And then when I'm there, I'll meet other people. I could maybe come back the next summer working at a different magazine. If I decided I didn't want to pursue financial journalism, maybe I wanted to go into – I mean, ideally, I would like – I think at that point, I would have liked to have been at Time Magazine covering global issues or um, pop culture. But I was, I was like, what's the most likable place that I could land, given my experience as a finance major, personal finance magazine. So uh, I just put myself in their shoes, and and so they're like, well, you have all the ingredients to work here. Um, we just want to make sure this is really what you want to do, because there aren't, you don't have a lot of competition. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I'd be happy. You know, like I'm just happy to be there. I would love the opportunity. So that summer, I started at Time Inc., got an internship. It was fantastic. It paid. They gave us housing. It was a dream come true for any intern. And I made great friends. And my job at Money entailed working with none other than Gene Chatsky. That summer, we worked together. And then um, I went on to complete my senior year in college. And then when I graduated from college, I attended graduate school for journalism, which was a 10-month program. And as I was about to graduate, my boss – from money, not Gene, but another boss called and said, Hey, what are you doing? I heard you're in New York studying. I said, Yeah, I'm actually graduating in a few weeks. And he said, Hey, why don't you come back? You know, we need some summer help and maybe it could turn into like a full time gig. We wouldn't we would, you know, we could pay you a little bit more than your internship from the summer ago. Um, you'd be sort of a glorified intern. And I said, Yeah, sure. I'd you know, I had great memories there and I would love to I'd love to going back. So I went back. And at this point I was even further, um, exp- I was more experienced and I, I was working with Jean even cl- more closely. So, uh, uh, I got a, a lot of ch- opportunities to work with her. And, and so, yeah, that's, well, that's how it happened. You,
1: well, you definitely, definitely are different people and have different stories. Your demeanor is fairly similar in the way that you come across as very helpful, uh, people, very easy to work with very, um, uh, very kind, like you, like you enjoy the relationship that you have with the people who trust you to, you know, ask you questions about stuff. Does that come specifically from Jean or is that, is, is that kind of the reason why the two of you got along? Do you think you learned that from her?
0: I learned so much from Jean. I mean, my personality is my personality, but I definitely think that I, I learned so much about professionalism, about, just maintain, how to maintain relationships, good relationships in your career, work ethic. She's one of the hardest working people I've met. She's very independent. So I, I learned a lot of excellent things from her that I definitely have taken with me. And she knows this. And I, I, I attribute so much of my success to having had that brush of experience with her. It was my, one of my most pivotal job experiences for sure. Because also the other thing I learned from Jean, and I've told her this, she's been on my podcast. She's one of my inaugural guests. I said, you know, what I really learned from you that I never learned in school, that I, I'm i pretty sure that even today, if you were to shadow a, a class at the Columbia School of Journalism, they would not be teaching you this. It's how do you be entrepreneurial as a journalist? How mm-hmm. do you do it? How do you go out there on your own and make it happen and make a career that's viable How do you make a, how do you create a brand? What is a brand? How do you do all of the above? Book writing, speaking, podcasting, being on the Today Show, magazine writing. You know, how do you do all of that? Where does it start? How do you, what's the secret to that formula? And it's not, there's not one formula, but I definitely learned from Jean that there's a lot you can do with a journalism degree. And that you don't have to be pigeonholed into just doing radio or just doing magazine writing or just doing TV. In fact, you could do it all and you can all, you can do it all really well.
1: It comes back to your personal financial philosophy, I think, which is own it. It's the same with your career.
0: Yeah. And, and, and really what you're doing is you're storytelling, you're helping people. And so. You can do that across, and the platforms are just platforms. You know, you're just carrying the good advice and the good energy and th- across the different mediums to reach more people. And if you're excited about that and can do that, you should because it's a way to uh, make more money, but more importantly, reach more people, help more people, and diversify your own uh, skill set. And, and I think also give yourself more job security along the way. If one door shuts, another one is still open, another one opens.
1: Which is funny because I think, you know, as as I mentioned earlier, that you you have a lot of traits that are similar to Gene. There's somebody working with Kramer just seems night and day.
0: (laughs) Kramer was, so I said one of the most pivotal (laughs) job experiences was working with Gene Chatsky. The other was working with Jim Kramer. Yes, uh, very different. I don't think anyone is like Jim. He is, I think what I learned from him was... So many things, but I think what really um, changed me was: if you're going to do anything, do it extremely well, come prepared, be respectful, and know your audience. I learned all of those things from Jim, um, and if I already knew them, I knew I, I they were solidified working with Jim. He is hard to please, that man. But when you do come up and you show up and you're well-researched and you are kind and you are respectful and you are hardworking, he appreciates that and he rewards you for that. And, um, and I see it in his own work. You know, he is extremely well-read. He is a genius that I will never have that most people will never have he's an a he's a walking encyclopedia of the stock market of the history of the world he's brilliant not just about stocks either he could talk a he could have he could hold a conversation about politics he can hold a conversation about sports about um real estate about everything he's just a he's just a renaissance man and people a lot of people don't know this but he has many businesses that you don't see. Like he runs – I think he still runs a popcorn business. Like he just he's, – <laughs> he's got real estate. And so um, he's very entrepreneurial. Um, he's also a great dad. And I just really admire him. I mean, I mean certainly there were days where I was frightened of him. <laughs> I mean, like He's a demanding guy and he's very hard to please sometimes. Um, He also was a co-owner of the company, so you didn't want to cross right. him. But he's a friend now, and I don't think I thought that was going to end up being the case. Like I just thought this was going to be like a guy that I work for that's going to be really demanding. And he was, but also uh he really was appreciative of people that showed up and delivered well. Um I hosted a show with him on the street.com TV called Wall Street Confidential for a couple of years. And I wasn't the first choice for that show. They went through several other hosts before they finally came to me and – it was hard shoes to fill when I when I was put in the host chair, but I just, I didn't pretend to know things that I didn't know. And I showed up asking good questions, having read, he gets up at three in the morning and by 6am he's written like four articles.
1: Holy cow.
0: So, and also he's had a workout. Also he's had probably a conference call and he's had a nutritious breakfast. Um, I've maybe woken up and brushed my teeth by six (laughs) o'clock if on a good day. So I had to really catch his speed and and catch up to him. And And I tried my best and certainly days I felt like I just failed. And then I other days were home run and those days were were made up for the other days. And um, I, I joke that I would like light candles before I would go in an interview and interview him and like do a <laughs> seance and like – because, uh, you know, please be in a good mood today and please let me remember how to speak. I wasn't there to prove anything. Like I think some of the other hosts wanted to challenge him and I, I think there's – you know, I respect that but also I wanted to keep my job. So I just I – just, I was like – I was aware of like how to, you know, keep, keep it balanced. Um,
1: So Farnoosh, let's skip ahead to the, to the fill in the blank rapid file. Otherwise this is going to be a six hour podcast. (laughs) I want to ask the, I want to ask a little bit different questions than you've been asking your guests. So I want to, I want to do the entrepreneur on fire uh, thing that John Lee Dumas asks his guests, which is you're stuck on a desert island. You only have a, a couple items to create a new business. What would those, let's say three what what would those items be and how would you create a business out of them?
0: Okay. Wow. Well, so I have, I have exactly what I know what I would do. I've been on the podcast. I've been on John's podcast and I probably gave different answers then, but now having done the show and interviewing so many entrepreneurs, um, I kind of feel like I have a better sense of what it takes to start a business. I would need a wifi connection and a laptop. That's two things. And I would, and so access to the internet would be included. And then I would want, um, can I bring my son? (laughs) Is that a thing? No. Okay. Um, if I, so obviously if my husband's listening, if I had to choose between him and my son, we know who it'd be. Um, the third thing is I would bring sunscreen. (laughs) I would bring sunscreen, a laptop and a Wi-Fi connection.
1: What is your favorite app on your phone?
0: My favorite app on my phone is my um, – oh, gosh, I'm looking at – let's look at my phone right now. Uh, I would say it's Seamless. <laughs> Do you know what Seamless is?
1: I, I haven't even used Seamless, no.
0: Seamless or maybe Uber. I would say Uber. This idea, this concept that I can like call a – cat. especially living in New York City that I can hail a car at any point. I can call someone, a car who's at the airport. I can, you know, it's very convenient. I love that um, I don't have to pull out cash or my credit card when I'm done with the ride. I could just get out, say thank you and leave. And living it where I live in Brooklyn, I'm not so isolated, but there aren't a ton of cabs everywhere. So it's been very helpful in, in a pinch. So I will say that is my favorite app.
1: And I know that Jeremy, who's been rated four and a half, four point six 4.6 out of seven, who's driving a, a late model Honda Civic is going to pick me up in about three and a half minutes. There you go. Right, last one. I have to ask a stacking Benjamin's question because we talk movies at the end of our shows. What's your favorite movie of all time?
0: Um, mm, um, Edward Scissorhands. Really? I uh, I don't know why I love it so much. I just love it because I think it's such a sweet story, and I love it. I love Johnny Depp. I love Edward Burton. I, um, I just, my brother and I actually were 11 years apart. And when he was seven and I was like 18 or even earlier, we would watch that movie constantly to the point where, um, I'm not embarrassed to say this. I knew every word in that movie. (laughs) We would recite it to each other. We would do scenes. I could still probably recite scenes from that movie. I just, I love it.
1: That's fantastic. Well, thanks for having me do this. And man, this was fun.
0: Oh my gosh, so much fun. I didn't know a lot of this. I didn't know what to expect. So that's why I love having you hosted because you weren't going to just do my format. You were going to bring in your own je ne sais quoi. So thank you so much for that, Joe. And everyone, please check out my podcast with Joe. It was episode. Let me look here. I think it was 180. I'm I'm, I'm a little disappointed, yeah, though, I have to say
1: that I didn't make you cry.
0: <laughs> well, um, maybe you didn't just didn't see me crying. <laughs> That's sort of the beauty of podcasting with an only an audio aspect to it. Thank you so much, Joe. And thanks to all my listeners for encouraging me to do this. And maybe I'll do this again sometime with new answers. That is a wrap. I'd love to continue hearing from you, ladies and gentlemen. Send me a question over at SoMoneyPodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh, and uh, I will add it to the queue for the Friday episodes. Tomorrow, we've got on the show Brittany Castro. She'll be joining me for an Ask Farnoosh segment, questions about 401k rollovers, how do I start a business, how do I get the idea for the business, how do I get free scholarships, and so all of that and more tomorrow on our Black Friday Ask Farnoosh uh, extravaganza. And speaking of Black Friday, I am actually actually going back to the city tonight to be on the Today Show tomorrow, bright and early in the 8 o'clock hour. So if you want to see what I look like in person, (laughs) you can watch and I will be talking all about Black Friday trends and some of the interesting deals. As I said, I won't be participating but happy to share the the news with everybody else and also to visit the Today Show because who wouldn't want to go on the Today Show? It's pretty fun. It's exciting to dress up and uh, hang out with Al Roker. Anyway, thanks for tuning in everyone. Happy holidays and See you back here tomorrow.